Hello, and welcome to the Business Decisions Podcast. My name is Stuart Wood, and I'm the CEO of Caravel Law. Every week, we bring you stories and insights from founders, owners, and leaders of great businesses, followed by some thoughts and input from one of Caravel's lawyers. Caravel Law has been a leader in legal innovation in Canada since 2004 and has helped many startups and small businesses overcome challenges as they have scaled and succeeded. Our hope is that these discussions will help existing business leaders and inspire others to start their own ventures. Now, let's get to today's guest. I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast today by Monica Abramov, the CEO and co-founder of Lunata Inc. or Lunata Beauty. As Monica will tell us, Lunata is on a mission to free women from cords and has brought innovative hair tools to the market. This is the second startup that Monica has worked on with her co-founder, the first one being shopbake.com, which was an online bakery marketplace. She also has spent some time with Ting Mobile and Metaflow. It's a very interesting story of how they have brought a new consumer electronics product to the market. She has lots to share with us in terms of the journey from idea to physical product in your hands and also has some inspiring stories of how they have taken advantage of opportunities where they have emerged in the two plus years that they've been operating Lunata. Following my conversation with Monica, I'll be joined by David Zender, a corporate and commercial lawyer with Caravel Law. We'll talk a little bit about the process of getting a new product listed with retailers, some of the agreements that retailers will be looking to put in place, and David shares his thoughts on the best way to negotiate those agreements with large retailers. It is unique these days to talk to someone who is bringing a physical product to the market. So I think you'll really enjoy this episode with lots of helpful information for anyone who's ever had an idea about a new product that they'd like to see brought to life. So with that, here's my conversation with Monica Abramov from Lunata Beauty. Delighted to have Monica Abramov, one of the co-founders of Lunata Beauty on the podcast today. Monica, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. So tell us a little bit about your company, Lunata Beauty. Yeah, so um, Lunata Beauty actually has two brands. So it's Lunata Inc. and we have two brands within that that main company. Um, And our mission is really to free women from cords. So all of our products are cordless um, and support the lifestyle of the woman on the go, she doesn't have time to be tied down to cords. Um, she's going from, you know, from home to gym to office to, you know, evening and whatnot. So, you know, we innovate or we create innovative, game-changing, I hate that term, but <laughs> game-changing cordless hair tools. And so, so far you have a flat iron and a curling iron, is that right? So um, we first launched with a cordless flat iron. Yep. This month we have launched our kind of 2.0. So we're calling it um, the Cordless Styler Plus. Um, We're coming out with our cordless curling iron and wand um, in January. Mm -hmm. We have a wet line, so dry shampoos, styling sprays, et cetera, some supporting products like brushes and clips. And then we have our sub-brand Unplugged Beauty. Um, And under that brand, we have a curling wand. Oh. And so you you have a co-founder for this business. Yes. And this is your second time working with this co-founder. Our second time working together, yeah. And how's that worked out? <laughs> it's great. Um, we had another business before, shopbake.com, which was an online bakery marketplace. Everyone kind of assumes that, you know, you're, we're two women working together, that we were friends before, but we actually met through ShopBake. Um, we got introduced by our co-founders at the time, um, and we found that we worked really well together and decided to start another business together. And do you have the same rules that you did on the first startup? So no, it's funny, actually, we learned from the first startup, we we both come from marketing backgrounds. So very similar backgrounds, digital marketing and brand building. 
Um, but for this business, we learned we really needed to kind of separate those roles. Um, so now Stacy uh, deals more, you know, on the marketing and content creation side, photography, social media, etc. Um, I do more of the product development. What else do I do? <laughs> the account management. So uh, retailer relations, you know, working with VCs and things like that. So. And you've had some early success with some key retailers, is that right? Yes. So um, by the end of this year, we'll be in about 19 different retail partners. So our first um, retail partnership was with Nordstrom. Mm -hmm. um, and it's funny, a good place to start. It is a good place to start. <laughs> and it's funny because we had just originally purchased 105 units to test the market. So we weren't even a business yet. We were just selling on Amazon and through our own site. And we're like, let's just try... You know, let's just try to pitch to some retailers and see what happens. And Nordstrom got back to us. By the way, I reached out on LinkedIn to a buyer mm -hmm. and they reached out and they're like, send us some samples. We're like, okay, this is our big break. Um, and they sat on it for four months. Mm -hmm. So we're like, okay, well, you know, I guess they don't love it. But four months later, they reached back out and they're like, we've been trying it, you know, in the office. Ah. Buyers love it. We want to put it online and see what happens. And we always joke that we had to become a company within a week. Um, we were previously fulfilling orders from my living room. It was not ideal and or efficient. So we had to partner with the 3PL, get incorporated, get insurance, do all the things that we needed to do to actually become a business. Um, and we ended up launching on their site in June of 2018. And then from there, it just kind of like catapulted. So we had Sephora reach out. We had Ulta Beauty reach out. Um, and then it was kind of an easier sell after that. And yeah. we really did that to kind of legitimize the brand. Um, you know, now obviously direct to consumer is so big, but we went the retailer route first because it is a consumer electronics brand. There is a level of trust involved and consumers want to make sure it's not another like Instagram brand. Yeah. Um, so having us in these big retailers has really helped like fuel our growth. So it also sounds like you were quite fortunate that Nordstrom had female buyers on their team. Yes. Yes. Because they used the product. Yeah. Got their own personal experience with it and could then identify that their shoppers would get value from it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas you imagine if it was an all male buying team, they might get that product and think. Which we've had. This? Yeah. We've had experiences. Yeah. Best Buy was a male buyer new yeah. to the category too. So we're kind of nervous, but he loved it. He loved the innovation um, side of it. So mm -hmm. Yeah, we launched at Best Buy last month. Oh. Yeah. And so in terms of the physical product, yes. did you know when you started out that you wanted to build a physical product? Did you identify this need and decided? Yeah, so I've always wanted to have a tangible product business. Yeah. Um, our last business was a marketplace, so it wasn't so much you know, physical product. Mm -hmm. I had a bakery prior to that, which was consumable products, but I always wanted to, you know, actually have like a product company, but I never really, you know, knew what that product would be. Mm -hmm. But this was kind of a fluke because, you know, it was, it came from a need. Stacey and I traveled a lot for work in our corporate jobs. And for our last business, we ended up in Ireland and we packed like one iron between the two of us to, you know, save space. And it was a $300 GHD flat iron. I plugged it in with my adapter and my converter and it blew up and almost burnt down the Airbnb that we're staying at. <laughs> and we had all these investor meetings lined up. We're like, great, let's go to the nearest like blow dry bar and get our hair fixed. So it was always like a, you know, 
a need in the back of our minds as consumers. So every few months I would search Amazon, like, has someone come out with this yet? And nobody had. It was like the same butane powered stuff. I won't mention any brand names, but um, no innovation in the last 30 years. So it was really like, why don't we order some samples from China and see what happens? And, you know, if they're great, it'll be a side hustle. And that's kind of how it started. So we fell into it. It wasn't like we were looking for a product to sell. It was just like, you know, came from that need. And then it just blew up from there. So you don't see a lot of companies that are coming out with new physical products. Yeah. Usually when you bump into people doing a startup, it's software as a service, that sort of thing. So what's involved in getting a product sort of off the ground? Oh, God. Um, So (laughs) considering this is like, again, consumer electronics, there's a lot involved and we didn't know where to start. We've never, we're not engineers. We've never built, you know, a product like this before. So, and we didn't have a budget. So uh, we used Upwork a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, We still do. We found an industrial designer to actually design like the 3D model of what we wanted it to look like. That was our first point, like our starting point. Mm -hmm. And then we we tried to find engineers on Upwork. (laughs) And that was a very interesting experience. We found someone from, where was he from? I think Nigeria, actually. Mm -hmm. And we've seen a lot of his work, you know, prior. And so we gave him a chance was really inexpensive but of course you know inexpensive in the short term expensive in the long term so you know everything we couldn't check his work you know we couldn't check like the pcb drawings and all that kind of stuff so um, when it came time to get a prototype made we were referred to a company that had roots in toronto but were based in hong kong so they did all the rapid prototyping and then they also managed a factory but we just went to them for the prototyping. Mm-hmm. And when it came time to assembling like the actual electronic parts, they're like, this isn't working. <laughs> you know, like this is all wrong. Mm-hmm. So we ended up hiring them to start from the beginning again and to engineer this whole product from scratch, essentially. So we wasted quite a bit of time, I'd say like eight months or so. Mm-hmm. Good learning experience for us. Um, yeah, like pay a little bit more and work with, you know, a legitimate engineer right from the start. So it, it was a lengthy process. It still is. Um, we, you know, we've had so many delays, so many hiccups. So yeah, working with, with China, language barriers and all that kind of stuff is definitely challenging. We had to, you know, compromise on some of the features that we had originally wanted. So it's it's been crazy, even just the whole process of filing for patents and, and things like that. So so what did it feel like the first time you had it in your hand? Oh, it was crazy. We actually met with the team. They were in town um, in Toronto. So they hand delivered this first sample. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'll never forget, like holding it in my hands. We we're like in tears essentially yeah. because we're seeing this product that we've, you know, dreamed up essentially come to life and mm-hmm. using it for the first time, albeit like it was, you know, it was a working prototype, but it was not... And did it work? It worked for 20 minutes, not at the, you know, max heat, but the first time I actually tried it on my own hair, I was like, oh my God, it's, it's a curl. It's a real curl. (laughs) So yeah, super exciting. And how do you decide who gets to use it first? So it's, it's not even that we decided who uses it first. It just so happens that like, I 
I'm really like I, I use wands a lot versus mm -hmm. the clipped curling iron. Stacy tends to use the clip. Mm -hmm. um, so with the wands, I'm always the one trying it out first. And they also send it to my house first. So that's probably why. But yeah, my hair has probably a lot of heat damage now. But have you had any experiments along the way that didn't work? With this product? Yeah. yeah, there were certain things that we wanted it to have that it doesn't right now. Like we wanted it to work while plugged in. Um, that was something we weren't able to achieve on this run. We are able to achieve it on our other products. So hopefully in the next iterations, we'll be able to offer that feature. So it works cordless. Cordless, yeah. That doesn't work plugged in. Plugged in, yeah. Oh. So what we did to kind of mitigate that issue is we have removable batteries. Um, so the user can carry spares if they need to, especially for professionals. Um, that are doing on-set work, on-location work, weddings and whatnot, they can carry spares just like a photographer would yep. and just pop them in once the battery dies. So, so your product gets up to 450 degrees Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit? Yes. And so when you have a product that's getting hot like that, yep. how much testing and safety checks are involved? In, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so everyone, not everyone, our team in China handles all that. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, there's tons of QA involved, obviously certifications. We're in the certification process right now um, with the curling iron, mm -hmm. um, which is a very long and arduous process. Mm -hmm. um, so they do extensive testing. And then we have a third party um, that tests it as well um, in the factory. So. Is that what the, the retailers are looking for? Is just the evidence that you've had it thoroughly tested? And no, not really, honestly. We haven't even, well, no, some of them do. So QVC has a very extensive like QA process um, where they test on their own. Then there's a third party that they need reports from. But honestly, most of the retailers have not. As long as we have our certifications, they've been pretty lenient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so where did the name Lunata come from, by the way? It's my son's names together. So Lucas and Nathan. Oh, there you go. Um, I was driving myself nuts trying to think of a name. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted it to sound, you know, equal parts like feminine and kind of sounded like a hair brand, but also had some sort of tech-ish vibe to it. And then I was racking my brain and finally I was like, you know, what, let's go with the meaningful route. So, and everyone loves the name. So. Yeah, it's a great name. And then Unplugged is a very obvious uh, choice for the other sub brand. We wanted something very straightforward where when you're walking through Walmart or Target, like Unplugged Beauty, you can see exactly what that means. Like Unplugged, no cords. So. Yeah. What was the thing you've been having two brands? So um, Lunata is really a prestige brand, more on the luxury side. Like we sell Bolt Renfrew and Hudson's Bay and Nordstrom and Rolf and Selfridges. So um, we were missing out on that opportunity with the big box retailers, the Walmarts, the Targets, the Costcos of the world. And we had a lot of interests, interest from uh, reps that represented these retailers. So we saw more of an opportunity. Also, we knew that, you know, one of the big brands would come and knock us off at a lower price point. So essentially, we decided to do it ourselves first. So um, that's kind of the mentality and the reasoning behind Unplugged Beauty. And it's really taken off on the direct-to-consumer side. Mm -hmm. We just launched it at the end of September, and it just, I guess because of the price point too, it's an easier sell. Um, so we're, we're thinking, we're hypothesizing that that will be our D2C winner. You mentioned QVC. Have you done a, a show on QVC to sell your products? Not yet. So we're going on air in December, oh. and we're doing the shopping channel on Tuesday, so December 3rd. 
Wow, very so, exciting. Yeah, Canada for Shopping Channel and then U.S. for QVC. Ah, and what's the prep work that's involved in doing something like that? Oh, God. <laughs> if you ask our account manager, Rianne, she just actually messaged me today. She's like, I can't wait until this is behind us because it's a huge process, yeah. like a very lengthy process. There's just so many moving parts um, from, you know, the QA stuff that I mentioned to the models, the guests, like the honor guests. Originally, they wanted us as the founders on. But I mean, I don't know how salesy we are. So we, we wanted a professional, you know, to, to handle that part of things. So yeah. the uh, uh, channel is a great channel still, though, right? Yeah, there's a lot of products moved that way. Absolutely. And, you know, there's kind of that stigma with home shopping mm-hmm. that, you know, it used to be very different than what it is now. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, Dyson sells their new hair tools on there on both channels, actually. And QVC um, is actually increasing quarter over quarter. So, you know, it's not going anywhere. Yep. Um, so it'll be really interesting because it's our first experience with home shopping. So yeah, there you go. We'll see, how it goes. see how it goes. Yeah. And you've launched products at uh, CES in Vegas. Yes. Right? So what's that experience like? <laughs> uh, it's interesting. We had a lot of really cool opportunities come from CES at the same time it's very risky. So, you know, we had the R&D, the heads of R&D from Conair come to our booth. We had the CEO of Philips come to our booth, which was crazy. Mm -hmm. So their R&D team came one day, were talking to us about licensing, and then the next day brought their CEO. So it was funny actually, because Stacy was on the other side of the booth pitching to them because we pitched everybody who came in and they had their tags or their, uh, you know, their badges flipped over and I recognized him because, you know, he was there the day prior and he whispered in my ears, we brought the CEO and Stacy had no idea. So she's pitching, not knowing it's the CEO of Phillips, wow. uh, which probably worked out better in our favor because the pressure was off, but um, that was a really cool experience. But, you know, it's, it's very risky because you have all the factories um, from overseas walking, taking photos and, you know, you have a product that's on display that's not yet in market. So it's very risky. So and is it hard to get attention? Because that's a sea of products all coming It is, but we were in, um, it was called Eureka Hall. So it was almost like walking through Kickstarter. Mm. So there were tons, there's tons of noise, don't get me wrong. But, you know, when it comes to beauty, we were like one of the only brands there. Yeah. Um, so we had a lot of great, you know, opportunities. We made a lot of great connections, a few retail connections. Um, we had City, City TV actually um, came to do a segment on us. I, fa- I saw the guy with the city TV camera and I ran up and I'm like, we're from Canada too. <laughs> like come feature us. So they did, which was great. So we're on breakfast television and then another show on the DIY network called, um, I don't know what the show was called, but anyways, they, they filmed us there too. So it was wow. cool. So what marketing uh, has been most effective for you in, in trying to sell a new physical product like this? Yeah. Um, it's a lot of education, so we haven't done too much on Google AdWords yet, although we just um, we're in the process now of partnering with Google for their accelerator program to really, you know, start really doing search. Um, so it's a lot of education with you know Facebook and Instagram ads and whatnot. Um, we worked with a lot of influencers, some successful, not some not so much, mm-hmm. and it doesn't always really depend on the following. It's more like the engagement. Um, and the type of followers that that influencer has. So 
we had a lot of success with some YouTubers that actually did like a whole, you know, review and tutorial. So that's been one of the big kind of channels. But 2020, we're really going to be building our direct to consumer. So really a huge like push with marketing and PR and whatnot. Whereas, you know, 2019 was all about like retailer partnerships. So Yeah, now D2C is kind of our next focus, big focus. And have you gotten a, so you were just on Dragon's Den. Yeah, um, Dragon's Den was really cool. We had like a screening event for it just last week um, where we invited all of our partners and vendors and some influencers and media. So it's been really cool. A lot of people think it was too easy. Um, oh, because nobody was such a no-brainer. There was no the, drama. No drama. Yeah, oh. so we tried to create drama. But it didn't work. That's true. The, well, you had three offers, though, right? Yeah, it was four dragons that were in. Two of them ended up going in together. But yeah, three offers, four dragons. Do you really have to make the decision right there on the spot? You know, we, we knew going into it that we were really strong in retail and wholesale already. So we needed that help on the, you know, direct-to-consumer e-commerce side. So we kind of knew, you know, that we wanted Michelle. Mm-hmm. So, but of course, for the show, we had to make it very... Had to have some sort of deliberation there. It was your second time on Dragon Set. Yes. Yes. Our first show, uh, our first episode was with Shop Bake. Mm -hmm. Never made it even to a web episode. So this was like, you know, amazing to actually see the pitch. But yeah, we were definitely less nervous the second time around. But you've ended up making a partnership with someone you met the first time around. That's right. Yes. Um, so Joe Mimran was on the Dragon's Den panel the first time around. He didn't make us a deal with ShopBake. But, you know, a few years later when we started Lunata, um, Stacy actually saw him at a cafe. And this was right after a meeting with Holt Renfrew. We just got in and we already got into Ulta or we were talking with Ulta and just got into Nordstrom mm-hmm. or launched at Nordstrom. And so Stacy messaged me and she's like, should I go up to Joe? He's in this cafe. I was like, yeah, do it. Like, let's do it. We weren't even fundraising at the time. Mm-hmm. It was so early. But she went up to Joe, pitched him right on the spot. And he's like, okay, like, so do you want to give me a piece of your business? And we're like, ah. But he invited us to pitch to him at his fund, which we did. And he ended up like pitching to us about what they could offer us. And we walked out of there, we're like, oh my God, we just had, you know, a dragon pitch to us. And then we ended up partnering with Joe and Gibraltar and they invested very early on. And it's been a great partnership. And has that added a lot of value? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Joe has been absolutely great. And Gibraltar has been great with, you know, just um, introductions, retail introductions, just helping us with the whole, you know, the whole supply chain, essentially, um, you know, from working with China um, to the packaging um, to branding and everything. So it's been great. Oh, that's fantastic. And so in terms of the product line, you've now expanded from the first electronic product yes. to the second one. Yes. Now to mention dry shampoo and hair accessories. And yeah. Like How did you think through the decision of moving into different categories? Like, um, is it all branded under Lunata? Yes. So that stuff is all branded under Lunata. And we really wanted to, you know, create products. We wanted to create this big brand story instead of just having like one or two SKUs. We wanted to really build on these supporting products um, that support the mission of, you know, women on the go and, you know, independent women who don't have time to like sit at home and do their hair. So everything that we come out with really supports this, this kind of 
mission, essentially. Um, so the dry shampoos help women wash their hair less often, which is, you know, something that we all hate to do. <laughs> so, you know, the dry shampoos, the finishing sprays, the brushes and clips and everything that just allows a woman to do their hair on the go. So touch-ups on the go, throw it in your bag and you're, you know, you're ready essentially for the next part of your life. Do you think the two of you as female founders is sort of shaping the direction that you're taking this? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, who better to build products for women than women in that demographic that exactly fit that kind of criteria. You know, I'm a mom, I have two kids, I have that crazy busy lifestyle, we travel a lot for work. So I think that's really helped us. A lot of these brands are run by men and, you know, no bashing the men, but it's hard to, it's really hard to know what a woman wants unless you're in that position. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what have you seen as the pros and cons of being two female founders that are out trying to bring a new product to market like this? Like you said, there are pros and cons. Obviously the pros of being women in beauty is always, you know, that always helps us out. We try to always have good hair all the time yeah. for these meetings and everyone's always like, okay, like you guys are showing your product and, and whatnot. So being that sort of use case has helped, you know, on the, the flip side, obviously, you know, now that we're fundraising and meeting with all these VCs that tend to be men, especially in the tech space, because we sort of live in that intersection between beauty, retail and technology. Obviously, we do consumer electronics, so we are in tech when we meet with these funds in LA and San Francisco that are used to, you know, SaaS businesses and, and tech, really kind of that more tra traditional, you know, the AI and the blockchain and all that stuff. And we're bringing sort of a consumer product, but, you know, is within the consumer electronics space, that's been a little bit tricky. Um, yeah, our consumers love to, to connect with the story and they love the fact that we're, you know, young-ish <laughs> female founders. So now we're seeing the trend with a lot of these beauty companies is the founders, these young, you know, female founders are really becoming like the face of the company. So we just need to be, we need to own it essentially. So in terms of the uh, next steps for the brand, do you plan out sort of a product roadmap sort of many years in advance? And as you mentioned, how long the lead time is between when yeah. you start and when something comes out, how far in advance do you have to think through what your next products will be? It's a, it's a mix of long lead sort of strategy as well as ad hoc kind of, you know, oh my God, we need to come out with this now. Um, to give you an example with uh, our first product for Unplugged, which was the curling wand, we threw it on Amazon and it went crazy right away. Like it's just crazy how quickly it grew organically. And what we started to see was that we started getting returns because cons consumers thought that it had a clip. So I know it's like, you know, for people who don't understand like the difference between a curling wand and a curling iron, the curling iron has that traditional clip, that mm -hmm. clamp that people are used to, but now the trend is really going towards that clipless wand that gives more of those beachy waves, a more modern look. But, you know, consumers are Am on Amazon, we found, you know, they don't necessarily read descriptions and they don't pay as much attention, although they're reading reviews, but they're not necessarily looking at the description. So we had um, some returns with people just thinking, you know, not knowing how to use it. So, you know, we're like, okay, we need to come out with a curling iron so that we have that option. This is something that we reached out to the factory. We're like, hey, we need to do this. And we're rolling that out way before the other products that we 
had in the pipeline. So, okay. Yeah. So what is the length of time that uh, takes you to go from idea to having something physically in your hand usually? So the curling iron is the longest because it is really like an innovative brand new product. You know, there have been flat irons that are cordless, but there have never been a full size. There's never been a full sized convertible curling iron and wand with removable batteries. That's full size. That's not butane powered. It's a mouthful. But so from kind of ideation to where we are now, it's been, I'd say, two and a half years. Mm. So we're in the final stages of certification and we've already started production. So, you know, if there are any changes that we can make them, we know at this point they will be minor. So, yeah, it's quite a lengthy process, which is also a benefit for us because we know that competitors coming in are at least, you know, a year and a half to two years behind. And so if you met a young entrepreneur who mentioned that they were thinking of bringing a physical product to market, what yeah. would be a few lessons or key points that you would tell them to keep in mind as they start out? Be an engineer. <laughs> um, yeah, that's one of the things that, you know, I, my dad's an engineer, an electronic engineer. So I wish that, you know, I had those skills. Is that, he working for the business now? No, no. <laughs> he works for the city. But he doesn't practice now, like, the engineering side of things. Yeah, I think we've had amazing experiences with our industrial designers. They're both from Upwork, and they're phenomenal. One is actually in Colombia, and one is in Barcelona. And they've been absolutely incredible. But on the electronic side things that you can't check the work if you're not an engineer, you know, go with a professional right away or at least somebody who's been vetted and be prepared to have a lot of patience and a lot of money, unfortunately. Um, it's not cheap. It's not a cheap process at all. You know, just the R&D process, the prototyping process, and then obviously the tooling and molds and certifications is not an inexpensive process and, or, you know, not a cheap thrill that's for sure so when you see professional women showing up on an instagram live for example and talking about how they use the product and stuff like that does it make all this work worthwhile oh absolutely oh my god yeah and anytime we see a good review i you know i, I shouldn't but i take it so personally so anytime we have a review or not a review sorry return it hurts my heart and i'm not talking about influencers because obviously we all know they're sponsored and whatnot but when we see the real women like the end consumer um, who's like organically doing a post or writing a review and telling us how amazing this product is. It's the best. And did you, the best. when you were on the shelf at Whole Redford, did you go into the store? Oh yeah. <laughs> I brought my kids and they're like, Oh my God. So now my kids know exactly what I do. They tell everyone they're, they're, they're proud. So it's, Oh, awesome. that's great. Yeah. So if someone is interested in buying one of your products, what's mm -hmm. the best place for them to go? Online on our site. No, um, we have, so many great retail partners. So it depends on which product they're looking at. You know, if they're Canada, Hudson's Bay, um, most of our products are actually on their shelves. Holt Renfrew carries our Jet Setter kit. Best Buy Canada will be rolling out in all stores soon. So definitely support the in-store retailers. Um, but if you, you know, prefer to shop online, go to our website. Um, and then Unplugged, um, we're online at target.com in the States. Um, we'll be launching at Macy's.com. We're on BedBathAndBeyond.com and stores were in Hudson's Bay. And then hopefully some big ones coming very soon. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, it was really uh, fascinating to hear about, you know, bringing a physical product to market like this. So yeah. thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate no it. Problem.
All right, I really enjoyed that conversation with Monica. Now I'm going to bring on David Zender from Caravel Law. All right, I'm delighted to now be joined on the podcast by David Zender. David, why don't you tell us a little bit about your practice? Sure, thank you, Stuart. I've got over 30 years of experience working in a couple large companies as general counsel, as well as working in Bay Street law firms. My practice currently is a general commercial uh, law practice, also giving legal and business advice and some employment law and litigation and dispute resolution advice to clients. Some of my clients are in the retail field, and I have a variety of other clients in other industries, including not-for-profit, manufacturing, and online services. Great. Well, we just heard a story about a new consumer electronics product being brought to the market and sold through retail stores. How does a retailer approach these kinds of arrangements? What kind Uh, of agreements need to get established to get a retailer to start selling your product? Of course, as you might anticipate, that can vary considerably amongst various retailers. And certainly, uh, the experience can be very different for a supplier if you're dealing with a very large retailer uh, as opposed to a smaller independent retailer. There are a variety of standard agreements. And again, as I said, it can vary from retailer to retailer. But most retailers have an agreement as a starting point that's called the SBA or Supplier Buying Agreement. It can be very lengthy. It can be very one-sided in favor of the retailer. It can be very intimidated when you first see it. And the real challenge there is to ensure that you don't get the representative retailer annoyed with you because you want to spend time negotiating all the clauses in the agreement that you may not like. So it's a great opportunity to work with an experienced lawyer who can carefully show you which clauses, even though they're one-sided against you, aren't really worth fighting over because they don't really have much practical impact, and which few clauses might be things that uh, you should try to negotiate. Is there an opportunity to negotiate on some of these points, or is it generally, you know, particularly if you're a small manufacturer, very difficult to get a retailer to customize their agreement for your specific product? If you're somebody who has an innovative product, they're going to be more willing to listen and to negotiate. But the trade-off is if they're going to make concessions to you, the trade-off is that you may end up having to give them exclusivity. If your product is just a good product that they may want, but it's nothing that uh, is highly, highly innovative, what they would call a category killer product, then often they don't have the patience to negotiate very much. Uh, the uh, And just to close off on the agreement side, the other agreement that often is the case is many large retailers will have something called a marketing agreement, and that's an agreement they will uh, ask you to sign that sets out parameters around special promotions for your product, uh, sales for your product and, and uh, advertising for your product that they may require you to uh, either fund partially or share the costs uh, or, or sometimes take on the full cost of, uh, of marketing. And are there any key points for someone who has a product to be focused on or to keep in mind when making these arrangements? Uh, certainly. Uh, at the outset, as, as I mentioned, again, subject to the leverage issue, you want to be careful not to push too hard on negotiating the agreements. You may not like a lot of the clauses in the agreements, but you have to realize that sometimes that just comes part and parcel with dealing with a large retailer and you have to kind of hold your nose and and, uh, grin and bear it. As the flip side of that, you have to realize that some of the clauses in those agreements 
could have significant cost impact on you, especially if anything were to go wrong through the course of, of the relationship. So for instance, their agreements often have clauses that deal with what happens with customer returns, what happens with product recalls, what happens when there are customer complaints, what happens with unsold inventory, and also penalties relating to late deliveries when you don't comply with the delivery schedule. So you have to be aware of what their agreements say in regard to those issues. And because often you can't negotiate on those points, you have to factor that into your cost structure so that uh, if those types of costs and penalties arise, you can still uh, have that built into your price structure so that you can still have profitability in selling the product uh, to to the retailer. One other issue to keep in mind is if you don't have an exclusivity agreement with the retailer and you intend to sell either directly to consumers or through other channels, often they may have a clause in their agreement that's called the Most Favored Nation Clause, which basically says you can't sell to somebody else at any better price than the price that you're selling to them. So you have to keep that in mind as well. And you mentioned a couple of times uh, you have to be careful to manage the relationship and to pick and choose which points you negotiate on. Have you seen deals go sideways or go wrong because people push too hard in this negotiation phase? Uh, many, many times, especially with large retailers, often the merchandising uh, representative at a large retailer is juggling a lot of balls and their main focus is hitting their numbers. So they want to make sure they bring in enough product and sell enough product so that they hit the numbers and, and, and hit their targets for the year. Anytime you raise an issue with them that require, requires them to get approval from their boss or approval from the legal department, at a certain point, they, they can lose patience and they just deal with somebody else that's selling a competing product and lose interest in your product. One thing I wanted to ask specifically about, David, are there any kinds of safety checks or approvals that are required? You know, how does a retailer ensure that the products that they're selling are safe for their customers? That's a good question. Obviously, it's a more relevant question for certain products than others. But typically, the retailer will put the burden on the supplier. So you need to ensure that you've done your due diligence before you go to the retailer and find out through consultants or otherwise what types of safety and any other kind of certifications you may need for your product. And uh, obviously, there may be some expenses associated with that. Once you approach the retailer, they may require you to do additional testing to give them further comfort. And sometimes they may require you to pay for that. And then further to that, as the relationship develops, often in their agreements, they have a right to do periodic audits and they, that right tends to cover things like safety, but there are also other factors that retailers have policies about that they want to ensure that their suppliers are compliant with. So in addition to safety, they may do audits of your manufacturing facility, especially if it's offshore somewhere, to ensure things like that the workers are paid properly, that, they're, that the facilities are not using child laborers. Uh, those type of things. They'll also look at environmental issues, in particular, if there's any components in your product that could be problematic, for instance, lead or, or other uh, types of chemicals. So those are complications that can arise in the course of the relationship. You should ensure that you are uh, conversant with what policies they're going to require you to comply with and uh, that they factor into 
how you produce your products. Ultimately, all of, all of these things can be complications and can cost you some money. Uh, you can still, with open eyes and knowledge of these kind of risks, build them into your price structure and still have a very profitable and happy relationship with these large retailers that ultimately can sell a lot of your products. Perfect. Well, that's a lot of really helpful information today, David. Thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks, Derek. I want to thank my guests on the podcast today, Monica Abramov from Lunata Beauty and David Zender from Caravel Law. If you'd like more information about this podcast or about Caravel Law, please check us out at caravellaw.com. Thank you for downloading this episode of the Business Decisions Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe, leave us a rating, and potentially share this podcast with others that you feel might benefit from these conversations. We'll be back next week with another episode. And until then, we hope all of your business decisions are great ones.